Welcome to the Publisher's Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our November 2010 issue. Let's get started. Physicians and researchers alike agree on the importance of evidence-based medicine. But the real challenge for individual practitioners arises when they try to apply findings from study subjects who have a strictly defined medical condition to their real-world patients who usually present with a more complex course of illness. In the November issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry, C. Mueller and colleagues present a prospective multi-center study of patients with major depressive disorder to determine if the efficacy sample of patients in most studies, that is, those patients who do not meet any of the exclusion criteria, have better treatment outcomes than the non-efficacy or effectiveness sample of real-world patients who meet one or more exclusion criteria. The study followed over a 1,000 patients who were receiving inpatient naturalistic treatment for MDD. In contrast to both the study's hypothesis that patients in the efficacy sample would experience better treatment outcomes and the findings of previous studies that supported this hypothesis, the researchers found that the only significant difference in treatment outcomes between the two groups was in global assessment of functioning scores. Efficacy and non-efficacy groups differed significantly in several baseline measures, including age and treatment setting, but there were no differences in remission and response rates, length of hospital stay, 17-item Hamilton depression rating total score at discharge, or time to response or remission. This study suggests that, at least for the inpatients with major depressive disorder, data taken from typical Phase three studies may be more relevant and generalizable to real-world patients than previously thought. In the next article, researchers for the first time systematically assess the treatment preferences of patients with obsessive-compulsive disorder. Since patient treatment preferences can affect treatment adherence and therefore treatment outcomes, it is vital for practitioners to understand trends in treatment preference as well as to discuss those preferences with individual patients. A survey was designed by the authors and administered by telephone to 89 patients with OCD as diagnosed by a telephone screening evaluation adapted from the structured clinical interview for dsm 4 Axis one disorders. Participants were asked to choose among three available mainstream treatments and to rank more novel treatments according to preference. The mainstream treatment options included serotonin reuptake inhibitors, a form of cognitive behavioral therapy called exposure and response prevention, and their combination, and the novel treatments included investigational medication investigational psychotherapy, alternative treatments such as meditation, yoga, and herbal remedies, deep brain stimulation, and transcranial magnetic stimulation. While 43% of participants chose combination treatment 
and 42% chose exposure and response prevention psychotherapy. Only 16% chose medication monotherapy. In ranking the novel therapies, investigational psychotherapy was most commonly ranked as the most preferred treatment, and deep brain stimulation was the most commonly ranked as the least preferred treatment. More prospective studies are needed to determine what factors modify these treatment preferences and how preferences affect treatment outcome. Nocturnal sleep disturbances and insomnia, and recurrent nightmares in particular, are some of the most common presenting symptoms in patients with psychiatric disorders. In addition to impairing social and occupational functioning, these symptoms are associated with profound personal distress, greater susceptibility to future psychiatric disorders, and exaggeration of other clinical symptoms. In this study, Lee and colleagues investigated the relationship between nocturnal sleep disturbances and the risk of suicide attempts. In over 1,200 psychiatric outpatients who completed a detailed sleep questionnaire and were included in the study, frequent insomnia and recurrent nightmares were significantly and independently associated with both increased suicide attempts one year later and an increase in lifetime prevalence of suicide attempts. Participants with both insomnia and nightmares had even greater odds of lifetime suicide prevalence and one-year incidence of suicide attempt. Additionally, these researchers found that many medications used to treat depression, including SSRI and SNRIs, heterocyclics and non-benzodiazepine hypnotics, were independently associated with recurrent nightmares, even after adjusting for confounding variables. This study provides evidence that frequent insomnia and recurrent nightmares have clinical significance in predicting suicide risk in patients and underscores the importance of treating sleep disturbances in patients with psychiatric disorders. Next, Sparshad and colleagues completed a systematic review of the literature to explore the relationships between dose, plasma level, pharmacologic activity, and clinical outcome for the antipsychotic aripipazole. The goal of this study was to determine the usefulness of therapeutic drug monitoring in patients taking aripipazole. Data were extracted from eight studies that included a total of 651 patients. Four of the studies were naturalistic therapeutic drug monitoring studies, and four used positron emission tomography. Therapeutic drug monitoring is the process of measuring plasma drug concentrations to ensure beneficial effect in individual patients. It is particularly useful when blood concentration is not predictable from dose alone or when an ideal range can be established one that maximized efficacy and minimized toxic effects of a drug. In patients taking aripipazole, therapeutic drug monitoring may be useful to ensure treatment compliance or optimize treatment in patients showing insufficient response. However, the researchers found that the well-defined dose range for aripipazole reliably predicts plasma aripipazole level dopamine receptor occupancy, and clinical response in patients, making therapeutic drug monitoring unnecessary for most patients. Antipsychotic polypharmacy, the concurrent prescription of more than one antipsychotic, 
is associated with increased side effects, lower compliance rates, increased cost, and increased drug interaction problems and medication errors. Additionally, the advantages of second-generation antipsychotics, specifically better side effect profiles, seem to be canceled out when combined with first-generation agents. Despite all of these disadvantages and insufficient evidence of superior efficacy of antipsychotic polypharmacy, this practice is widespread and recently has become even more common. To determine the reasons why some clinicians are more likely to prescribe multiple antipsychotics than others, Dr. Bandrup and colleagues sent a questionnaire surveys to physicians and nurses at two pairs of treatment settings, one with high rates of antipsychotic polypharmacy and one with low rates. Results showed that greater knowledge and awareness of antipsychotic treatment guidelines among physicians and nurses were found in treatment settings with low rates of polypharmacy. Physicians at these settings also had higher confidence in these guidelines, increased recent involvement in research, and frequent local educational activities. Nurses at these settings were less likely to have a perception of an overwhelming workload and time pressure than nurses at treatment settings with high rates of polypharmacy. Based on this research, the authors recommend the perpetuation of treatment settings that have easy access to clinical guidelines, frequent academic activities, and a less stressful work environment for nurses. In a 16-week epidemiological study, Dr. Edward Vieta and colleagues investigate the prevalence of subclinical depressive symptoms in patients whose bipolar disorder has been diagnosed as clinically stabilized and determine the impact of these symptoms on patients' social and occupational functioning. 739 euthymic patients were included in the study and were assessed for at baseline and endpoint using various bipolar disorder, depression, and functioning scales. Using the 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale, the researchers found subclinical depressive symptoms in 17% of patients at baseline. Compared to the patients without depressive symptoms, this cohort experienced poor social and occupational performance and poor social adjustment. Additionally, 20% of the patients without subclinical depressive symptoms at baseline had experienced a new incidence of these symptoms by 16 weeks. A self-report survey was administered and identified additional cases of subclinical depressive symptoms, raising the total percentage of patients with these symptoms to a substantial 45%. As expected, Depressive symptoms were inversely related to functional status and social adjustment in all patients experiencing them. This study reinforces previous studies in confirming the high prevalence of depressive symptoms in patients whose bipolar disorder has supposedly remitted and highlights the negative impact of these symptoms on patients' functioning and length of remission. Although patients with schizophrenia experience overtly psychotic or positive symptoms and negative symptoms such as social withdrawal and loss of drive, 
Antipsychotics used to treat schizophrenia have mostly shown efficacy in alleviating only positive symptoms. In a new proof-of-concept study, Kane and colleagues evaluate the adjunctive use of R-mendafinil in schizophrenia to determine tolerability and possible efficacy, particularly for negative symptoms and cognitive deficits. Armadafinil, a non-amphetamine wakefulness-promoting medication, is the longer-lasting isomer of modafinil, which has been studied as a possible treatment for negative symptoms of schizophrenia with mixed results. Sixty patients with stable schizophrenia, taking risperidone, olanzapine, or paliperidone, were divided into four groups and given either placebo or 50, 100, or 200 milligrams of R-modafinil for four weeks. While R-modafinil was not associated with any improvement in cognitive measures, it was generally well-tolerated and did not worsen psychotic symptoms. It also appears to mitigate the negative symptoms of schizophrenia, calling for further research. Moving on to the next article. Like many other antidepressants, venlafaxine is metabolized by the hepatic cytochrome P450 system, the 2D6 enzyme in particular. As this enzyme has high polymorphism across the population, people can be classified into three phenotypes, poor, intermediate, or extensive metabolizers. In this article, Lobello and colleagues conduct a secondary analysis of four double-blind studies to determine if patients' phenotypes are related to the efficacy of venlafaxine in treating major depressive depression. By comparing the plasma concentrations of venlafaxine and its metabolite and looking at the ratio of the metabolite to venlafaxine in each patient, extensive metabolizers were distinguished from poor metabolizers. The efficacy and tolerability of venlafaxine in the two groups of patients were then compared. Extensive metabolizers showed significantly greater improvement on four of the five depression rating scales used compared to the poor metabolizers and achieved two- to three-fold higher rates of response and remission compared with poor metabolizers being treated at comparable doses. There were no substantial differences in tolerability for the two groups. This study establishes the cytochrome P450 2D6 phenotype as one important factor to consider in patients who have a poor response to venlafaxine and possibly other antidepressants. Although abrupt changes in mood polarity have been documented in bipolar disorder since the 1850s, we still lack a uniform definition of this switching phenomenon and a clear understanding of the neurobiology of switching. In a review of the literature from 1966 to 2008, Salvadorian colleagues investigate the switch process and its biological underpinnings. The researchers define the switch phenomenon as a sudden transition from a mood episode to another episode of the opposite polarity. They explain that historically, before the use of pharmacologic treatment, switches occurred spontaneously as a core feature of bipolar disorder. However, many switches in the modern era occur in patients taking medications and are associated with treatment, which make them treatment-emergent effective switches. 
the existence of two types of switches and the difficulty in distinguishing one type of switch from another in medicated patients makes the systematic study of these changes in polarity especially difficult. Evidence from this review suggests that certain pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic interventions with very different mechanisms of action can trigger switches in patients with bipolar disorder. The switch-inducing potential of antidepressants was found to be unclear, with the possible exception of TCAs, which confer higher risk of switching than other classes of antidepressants. Multiple neurobiological factors, including abnormalities in catecholamine levels, upregulation of neurotropic and neuroplastic factors, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis hyperactivity, and circadian rhythms were associated with both spontaneous and treatment emergent switches. The researchers urge more study in this area, especially systematic and integrated assessment of the variables associated with switching. Currently, there are no clinically useful assessments to reliably predict treatment response or non-response in individuals with depression early on in treatment. The next article describes the use of recursive subsetting to increase the accuracy of early treatment response prediction, focusing on over 2,000 patients participating in the STAR-D study. Study participants completed a 16-item quick inventory of depressive symptomatology self-reported baseline and at two weeks and six weeks into a citalopram treatment trial. The research developed a recursive subsetting algorithm which used both baseline variables and changes in score from baseline to week two to predict response or non-response to treatment for as many patients as possible. Although baseline variables alone were not useful in predicting response, symptom changes from baseline to two weeks identified 280 non-responders, 227 of which were non-responders at six weeks. Recursive subsetting based on combined baseline and symptom changes identified 505 non-responders, 403 of which were actual non-responders at six weeks. Further exploration of this approach may make recursive subsetting a clinically useful tool in predicting early treatment response in some patients, thereby saving time and money and preventing unnecessary prolonged periods of ineffective treatment for patients. The November issue also features the special section Focus on Childhood and Adolescent Mental Health. This section includes an introduction by Dr. Karen Wagner and four articles, three on mania and bipolar disorder in children and one on the pharmacologic treatment of ADHD. In the first article, Horwitz and colleagues present the study design and initial screening results from the Longitudinal Assessment of Manic Symptoms, which was funded by the National Institute of Mental Health to specifically look at elevated symptoms of mania in youth. Despite the burden of bipolar disorder in children and adolescents, there has been no study to date of patients selected specifically for elevated symptoms of mania and therefore no accurate data on their prevalence. The study found that elevated symptoms of mania were not rare 
and that participants with these symptoms were more likely to be Latino, younger, and insured by Medicaid. We look forward to further results from this longitudinal study to help improve the diagnosis and treatment of bipolar disorder in youth. Next, Gerald and colleagues examine the prevalence of comorbid medical and neuropsychiatric conditions in patients with pediatric onset bipolar disorder and the impact of these comorbidities on the bipolar course of illness data from the Medicaid program covering all medical services and prescriptions were used for almost 2,000 children with bipolar disorder and 4,500 children with no psychiatric disorders and showed 10 conditions to be significantly more common in children with bipolar disorder. These conditions included obesity, type 2 diabetes, endocrine disorders, migraine headaches, central nervous system disorders or epilepsy, organic brain disorders or mental retardation, cardiovascular disorders, ADHD, asthma, and substance abuse. Patients with pre-existing obesity, hypertension, migraine headaches, endocrine disorders, and substance abuse were more likely to develop adolescent onset bipolar disorder. And patients with pre-existing endocrine disorders and substance abuse were more likely to experience recurrent depressive episodes. In the next article, Pavaluri and colleagues examined the effect of pharmacotherapy on the cognitive circuitry function that supports voluntary behavioral inhibition in adolescents with bipolar disorder. Inattention impulsivity, and behavioral disinhibition are known to persist in adolescents with bipolar disorder even once mood stability has been achieved due to the effect that bipolar disorder has on the frontostracial circuitry that supports motor response inhibition. Using trials that mainly required motor inhibition, stop trials, and trials that mainly required motor action, go trials, the researchers compared the prefrontal activation of healthy controls and unmedicated adolescents with bipolar disorder at baseline and after 14 weeks, during which the patients with bipolar disorder received pharmacotherapy of initial second-generation antipsychotic treatment followed by lamotrigine monotherapy. Healthy controls were used, in part, to account for the effect of practice on successfully completing the trials. The initial treatment with second-generation antipsychotics with subsequent lamotrigine monotherapy enhanced prefrontal and temporal lobe activity during the response inhibition task, showing the reversal of neural circuitry dysfunction in patients with adolescent bipolar disorder. Finally, Wex-Monsky and colleagues assessed the efficacy of atomoxetine alone and in combination with behavioral therapy to improve the school functioning of children with ADHD. The behavior therapy component included a parent program, social skills program, and a school-based daily report card. Through direct observation of the classroom behavior of children in the study and, secondarily, parent and teacher report, researchers discovered that atomoxetine treatment improved classroom functioning and reduced ADHD symptomatology at school and at home. 
while the adjunctive behavioral therapy further improved functioning at home, it did not lead to further improvements in school functioning. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website, psychiatrist.com, to find a special NCDU festgrift on the history of geriatric psychopharmacology, continuing medical education activities, featured columns, book reviews, and letters from the November issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you'll join me in December for the next Publishers Podcast.